In your Bible today, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 17, we return to that passage of Scripture. That's the story, of course, of David and his victory over Goliath. And as soon as you find 1 Samuel 17, please stand to your feet and we'll read a few of the verses here. We won't read the whole account. It's 50-some verses long. Last week, I went through it pretty thoroughly, though, uh, explaining... Uh, the passage and some things about it. Now today, let's pick up in verse 29. And David asked the question, and the question is what our theme happens to be this month. David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? That's our theme this month. Is there not a cause? Let's read more about it. In verse 32, David said to Saul, the king, let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth. He is a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep. There came out a lion and a bear and took a lamb out of the flock and I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and I smote him and I slew him. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. A great verse on faith here. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go then, and the Lord be with you. Verse 40, he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones out of the brook. He put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a script, and his sling was in his hand. He drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine Goliath came on and drew near unto David. And the man that bare the shield went before Goliath. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. He was but a youth. He was ruddy, a red-headed young man. He was of a fair countenance, a handsome man. The Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Verse 48, it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to, David, to meet David. David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. I like that phrase, he ran toward him. He didn't run from his problem, his enemy. He ran from or he ran to the threat, didn't he? And David put his hand in the bag. He took out a stone, slang it, and he smote the Philistine in his forehead, and the stone sunk into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the earth. And David prevailed over the Philistine with a slang and a stone, and he smote the Philistine and slew him. And there was no sword in the hand of David, but he pulled the dead man's sword, and he beheaded him with it, as they did in those days. Thank you. And you may be seated. 
So David's question is, is there not a cause? All the armies of Israel, all these men of war have been for 40 days listening to Goliath march back and forth and threaten them and uh, curse their God and threaten their nation. And now David arrives on the scene and he says, What's, why, the, why the inactivity? Why the si- silence here? Is there not a cause? David's question is a good question, a great question for us in this hour. I define for you a cause, what David meant by the word cause there. And a cause is a matter of the greatest importance, of grave importance. A cause means that there is a great purpose that needs to be handled, that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be faced. A cause can be a movement, the pro-life movement. The reason for the energy of it after 50 years is the people feel it's a cause. It's a, an important thing that must be done. A cause can be a principle. For example, there's this man that came over here, I think, from Iran. He came from one of these repressive countries. And he changed his name. He changed his name to Freedom, his last name. And so he was a player for the uh, Boston Celtics in the NBA. And he's now become a full-time advocate for freedom. Freedom is his cause. He warns people about what is happening in America right now, and he compares it to what he experienced himself under a repressive government. And so he is, his cause is freedom. It can be a principle. Freedom can be a religion. Christianity is my cause as a minister of the gospel. A cause can be a gang. These cartel members that are down on our border right now and the gangs that frequent the inner cities of the United States. I don't know if you know the psychology of that, but these people are drawn in and they, people make friends with them and they develop very deep relationships and they point out the inequities of life. And they use that to stimulate these young people to join this gang. And once they've joined it, their loyalty to it is greater than their loyalty to any other thing on the earth, including their own families. You see, that it's a, it's a wicked cause, but they understand what a cause is. A cause can be a practice. I know some folks that their cause is fish and play golf. Recreation is the only thing that they want to do. I know other people, it's making money. I know some other people that are devout Christians, their cause is to witness, to find one more person with whom they can share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A cause can be a person, to become the follower of a person. And millions of people have followed Karl Marx now for the last 125, 30 years. That's not a good cause, but people buy into his philosophy and they follow his cause. Others of us, of course, we follow Jesus Christ as Christians. So there are many different ways that you can think of a cause, but a cause is always in the mind of the person a matter of supreme and grave importance. It's a great purpose that one has. So a cause is a deeply held conviction. It's one that people were willing to sacrifice for. In every one of these illustrations I just gave you, the people are willing to sacrifice. 
And many of them, they're willing to lay their life on the line for that cause. A cause has another characteristic. A cause compels us to action. We might stand around and talk about something and give something, something might be a matter of discussion. But you know what? When it becomes a cause in our life, you won't sit on the sidelines anymore. When something becomes a cause, it will compel you to join up and to act upon that which is the cause. The cause is greater than ourselves. I told you the story last week of Tillman, the football player, and uh, the 9-11 events got into his mind and his heart, and he left a $3.6 million contract in the NFL to be able to go and fight for his country as an army ranger. He was killed, unfortunately, by friendly fire, but still, that was his cause. His quote was, I want to live for a cause greater than myself. He understood this issue of cause. Now, for us as Christians, a cause must be righteous. It must be righteous. You and I don't want to be terrorists. We know that would be wrong. That would be evil. We're not going to join a cartel, even though it might enrich us, but we know that that's wrong. A cause for a Christian must be a righteous cause. It must be a noble thing. It must be based upon righteousness and good. And a cause, the other thing I want to say about it is a cause will ultimately define your life. Someday, when they have your funeral and talk about you, the things that, have, the things that will really define your life will be the causes, or cause, as the case may be, that you were engaged in, the purpose for which you live, the causes that I give myself to, ultimately define my life. And so we say about someone, what cause defined their life? We could say, she was a good mother. That's a cause that's worthwhile. That she gave herself to rearing her children and to training them to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Or we might say about somebody, he was a conservative. He believed in the conservative agenda. He wanted to preserve the heritages of the past. He wanted to pass on the benefits of the Constitution and things like that. That was his cause. Or we might say he was, a, he was a Baptist. His cause was to further the beliefs of the Baptist form of Christianity. So whatever they may be, I want you to understand a cause today. Now, I want to then go from that to my first point today that we didn't talk about last week, and that is the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ. That's a familiar term to you. Everybody's heard us talk about the cause of Christ. I don't know if I've ever spent any time defining that cause before, but Jesus communicated that cause many, many times in very clear terms when he was here on the earth. Would you look in your Bible, please, to the book of Luke, chapter 19 and verse 10. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 in your Bible is one of the clearest explanations from the very lips of Christ himself as to why he came, why he came to the earth, what his mission was. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, he says, the Son of Man is come. 
to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus defined his purpose as coming to the earth for the benefit of lost people. In other words, his cause was to bring us salvation. His cause was to bring us deliverance. You know the word salvation in your New Testament, if you'll look into the original meaning of it, it simply means to rescue. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save, that word save. I came to seek and to rescue the lost people of the earth. He looked down from heaven. He could see there was, they, they were helpless. There was no way they could save themselves. And so through the miracle of the virgin birth, as you've heard me say a hundred times, God entered into human history and he came with one supreme purpose in his mind. I want to come and rescue lost people from their lostness. In Mark, you can turn back one book, chapter 10 and verse 45, he says essentially the same thing, but he uses a little bit different approach. He says in Mark 10 and 45, I didn't come to be ministered to. Um, We need some people in the church to underline that in your Bible. You think the reason that you're a Christian is so somebody can come and minister to you. Now, when you have a need, we want to come and minister to you. But look, that's not the reason for your faith. Jesus' attitude was, I I didn't come for everybody to come and minister to me. I came to minister to them. And then keep reading. And what did he say? I came to give my life a ransom for many. What is a ransom? You associate a ransom with a kidnapping, don't you? It's a payment that's made when someone is held against their will. And Jesus Christ came and gave his life a ransom. Who did he pay that ransom to? It was a ransom to divine justice. It was to balance the books, all the sin of the world that had been committed since creation. Jesus Christ paid that debt off so that you and I would not have to pay that debt. He paid that debt because of grace and because of love and because he cares about you and me. And so, he, gave, he came to give his life a ransom for many, the cause of redemption. Redemption was his cause. I'll give you one more. There are many, but turn to John 18 and 37 in your Bible, and this is one of the, the most powerful of these causes. Why Jesus said he came, he's defining his cause to us. In John 18 and 37, for this cause came I. He said, so he's, it's just as clear as he can make it. This is the cause for which I came. He's standing before Pilate. He's being tried. He's bloody. The blood is running down his face from the crown of thorns. He's just been beaten. He is a bloody mass, a pulp, if you will, of human suffering. And Pilate is questioning him. And how does Jesus Christ answer the question? He answers it in this way. For this cause I came, Pilate. I came, he said, to bear witness of the truth. I came to tell the truth about what is happening in the world around us. And he told us the truth about man, that man is a sinner and helpless to save himself. He told us the truth about God, 
that God is a righteous God, a holy God, but a loving God who doesn't want any single person on this planet to perish. He came to tell us the truth about Himself, and He put that in His Word, and His Word today reveals His truth to us. So over and over, Jesus communicated His cause to seek and to save the lost, to give His life a ransom, a payment for the sins of mankind, to bear witness and hold up the truth about God and about man and about Himself, about the world around us, in fact. Now, once we have become Christians, our cause is His cause. His cause now becomes my cause. So if I'm a true believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if I'm following Him, I am going to seek and to save that which is lost. I am going to give my life in service, not on a cross, but I'm going to make some sacrifices in my life if I ever buy into the cause. See, here's the problem today in American Christianity, and I'm not the only one recognizing people. Every serious theologian I know is talking about this. We're pulling our hair out. We've created a generation of Christians in evangelical Christianity who serve the Lord when it's convenient. If they don't have something else planned, well, we're going out of town for whatever reason, and we do that too many times in many cases. And so, our focus, we, we haven't bought into the cause aspect of this thing. We, we have decided that Christianity is a discretionary practice. We practice it when it's comfortable and it's convenient and it's easy. But when it comes to really digging down and sacrificing our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, our time, our talent, and our treasure, what we're talking about this month in stewardship, when it comes to inconveniencing ourselves and sacrificing, uh-oh, I don't know if I signed up for this. And yet Jesus said what? If you want to be my disciple, not if you want to be saved. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about the Christian walk. If you want to be my disciple, that's a saved person, then you what? You deny yourself. Whoa. How opposite to American lifestyle today. You sacrifice yourself. You deny yourself. You take up your cross, an instrument of death, and you follow me. And boy, when the American Christian world understands again that our cause is to know Him, to honor Him, to love Him, to obey Him, regardless of the circumstances, the opposition. When the reason I exist is to advance the cause of Christ. Now, I've arrived at New Testament biblical Christianity. When my cause is to advance the kingdom of God, I've arrived at New Testament Christianity. The early Christians understood this. You know, by 60 A.D., Rome was persecuting Christians. Nero was the emperor. He hired people to start the fire and then blamed the Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome, and many people were lost. And these Christians were going everywhere, 
And they became a threat to him because they were so aggressively winning people to their cause that he began to look at them as a threat. And to see the thinking of those early Christians, how they had bought into Christianity as their cause for being. The Apostle Paul is caught and he's imprisoned in Rome in the Mamertine prison, a miserable dungeon in which he was living. And he writes in the book of Philippians, I rejoice that I'm in the prison. I rejoice in my suffering. Why are you rejoicing, Paul? Because through my efforts and the efforts of the Christians here, the gospel has now penetrated the Roman government up to the palace. Even people in Caesar's household have come to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, even though he's suffering personally, he is thrilled and full of joy that the gospel is advancing. Now, let me transition because I've tried to lay a very thorough understanding in your mind of what is a cause and that Christianity is a cause. It's the cause of Jesus Christ. Now, let me transition and make two points with you then the rest of the time. The cause of Christ is the cause of the local church. The cause of Christ is the cause of the local church. Listen to me carefully. Look up here. Hear me. I don't want, boy, I'm glad you're here, and I don't want you to walk out of here not understanding this. Just before Christ ascended back to heaven, he delegated responsibility for his cause to somebody. Who did he delegate it to? He delegated it to the 12 apostles. Matthew chapter 28, we call it the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize them and then teach them all the things that I've taught you. So you have a three-stage process. Make disciples, evangelize, win people to Christ, and then baptize those converts, which means you bring them to the church and baptism is the act of affiliation with a local church. And then after you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you begin to train them, and you teach them, and you develop them, and you bring them to maturity so they can advance the cause of Christ so that now you've got more people working for the cause of Christ, and this thing can spread to every single creature on the whole earth if it were properly done. And so before Christ went back to heaven, his last words, his last words were what? Go and make disciples. And he gave it to the only church that existed at that time. His 12 apostles constituted, in my mind, the first church that ever existed. And he sent them out to do this. So here's what we can say. Hear me, church members. The local church is the physical, tangible expression of the cause of Christ upon the earth. I'll say it again. The local church is the physical, tangible expression of the cause of Christ upon the earth. If you just were a Martian and you dropped in here, somebody parachuted you onto the earth, 
and you said, I hear about the cause of Christ, where would I find it? Where do you think they'd send you? To the Red Dot store? To Safeway? If you just came here and asked, where is the cause of Christ? You would be sent to a church. It might be a good church. It might not be a very good church, but it would be a church. The cause of Christ is identified, my point, with the local church. And every local church is to be an embassy of the kingdom of God. Think of the Florence Baptist Temple in that way. Not our church, not looking for all the flaws. And brother, we've got them. I tell you, they're all, we got more warts and blemishes and scars than you could shake a stick at. But, but, but we, we're, we're doing what we, what we believe is the right thing. So get your eyes off of the other people and their weaknesses. Get your eyes off of my weaknesses. For heaven's sakes, for one time in your life, get a biblical view of what this thing is about. Buy in. All in, as Dabo says. And here's what I want you to get in on, that every church is an embassy of the kingdom of God. Now, to various degrees, they they do that. Some are not very good at it. Some are very good at it. If you go up to Washington, there's a street called Embassy Row, and you drive down that street, you'll see the flags of the nations of the world. There's the French Embassy. There is the Mozambique Embassy. There is the Embassy of Italy, and they have their flag out there, and there'll be a big building with a fence around it and guards standing there, and in that building, that actually, that, that property actually becomes like the state of France or Italy or whatever they're representing. And they represent their country there. And everything they do is trying to advance the cause of their nation, whoever that might be. Now, when you walk in the doors of the Florence Baptist Temple or any solid local church, you're walking into an embassy of the kingdom of God. We're trying to advance the cause Do we understand that, church? The average Christian, I'm afraid, doesn't think of their church as the cause of Christ. They can tell you about the buildings. They can tell you about the preacher. They can tell you about the people. But the church's purpose, mission, reason to be, the reason we occupy the space that we do is because this is the cause of Christ. I'll tell you how I think about it. I think about it like I'm going to work and serve the Lord and preach and try to win souls and pray like this is the only church on earth. Now, no, it's not. I'm not putting down anybody else's church. I'm just saying I'm going to act, though, like this is the only one left, and we got to get the job done. When we think like that, we bought into the cause. And the reason to join a church, then, what's the reason to join a church? Is it membership in a club? No, it's not a club. It's the embassy of the kingdom. So why do you join? Why would you want to do that? Because you're now a citizen of that kingdom if you're a Christian. And you join it because you want to help advance the cause. So when you give a dollar or you serve or you do anything to advance the cause, of Jesus Christ, 
And that you join the church so you can be a part of that because you can't do it by yourself. I can't do it by myself. When I was entering the ministry, it was one of the thoughts that compelled me to become a pastor and plant a church. I thought, when I come to the end of my life, I want to look back and say that I gave my life to something that made a real difference, a difference for eternity. I want to give my life to something that when, when they pat my tummy with that spade out there in that cemetery, that somebody will say, he made a difference for eternity. I was at the banquet, the South Carolina Citizens for Life banquet in Columbia Friday night. I was talking to somebody. It was actually turned around like this, and all of a sudden, uh, somebody comes up, and man, they just, they just grabbed me from behind. I turn around, and there's this pretty attractive woman standing there, and she grabs me, boy, and she puts a bear hug on me and said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I'm just... And she just went on and on. I was so embarrassed. I was looking around. My wife is right over there, and this woman is hugging me like this. I was a little uncomfortable. And I, she said, do you remember me? And I, for the life of me, I could not. Don't ever ask me that, please. I just go blank when I do that, you know. And here I am in the arms of this pretty woman. And my wife is four feet away from me. And there's six, seven hundred people in that banquet, and they're all looking at me, and I'm just dying inside. You know what I mean? Well, she said to me, Pastor Monroe, 30 years ago, I got pregnant as a single girl, and I had an abortion, and I moved to Florence. And one night, I was there living with my boyfriend. And I came to a Wednesday night church service, and you preached, and I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. I was saved. And God forgave me for my abortion. And she says, Pastor, I just I want to thank you again for being there and preaching the gospel and accepting me. I've been serving the Lord now for years in a crisis pregnancy center in the upstate of South Carolina. Boy, you know what? That's my paycheck. There's my paycheck. That lady's life was changed when she walked in here and heard somebody tell her that Jesus came to seek and save people who have had abortions and all other kinds of sinners as well. You're making a difference for eternity. We're stewards of the cause of Christ. Now, real quickly, what does real quickly mean from me? <laughs> I'm doing my best, folks. <laughs> the cause of Christ is not only the local church, but the cause of Christ is also in your family. There are three great institutions that are divinely appointed. The church, the state, and the family. But the family was the first one of them. And in Genesis 1.28, God immediately in the first chapter of the Bible gave His 
he gave his uh, instructions for the family. I want a man and a woman to marry, to bear children, and then I want you to fill the earth. I want you to populate this empty earth that then was. And I want you to rear those children to be godly seed. That's a biblical term, by the way. Put that down, parent. Godly seed. That's your goal, your objective for rearing children. You're raising godly seed. Not just kids who are going to keep the law, but godly seed. You rear those children who will then one day advance the cause of Christ. Without the family, we can't do that. And today, let me tell you, hear me, the traditional biblical Christian family is in a life and death struggle for its very existence. I was reminded again this weekend of that. The great, there's a great, great threat against not only the church, but especially your family right now. If you're going to rear a godly family, you're going to have to become very intentional about it. It, it has to become your cause, like the cause of Christ. It is the cause of Christ, the family. The threat to your family comes from left-wing progressive government policies. Now, let me say it again. Don't, don't anybody miss it. The biggest threat to our families right now is left-wing, progressive, liberal government policy. Why would I say that? Just 72 hours ago or something, the South Carolina Supreme Court struck down the heartbeat bill that had been passed by our legislature. We've been waiting now for months for that. That bill simply said that once a doctor can hear the heartbeat of an unborn child, then once that's heard, you can no longer do an abortion. In other words, they define the beginning of life as having an audible heartbeat. The Supreme Court of this state, in their great wisdom, struck that down. That law now is gone. And it cannot be appealed. I was talking to some people about it Thursday night and then again yesterday. And the basis of their thinking was a woman's right to privacy. Now, we know that people do have a right to privacy. We're not trying to strip people of their privacy. But there's limits to that privacy. And when the, that privacy supersedes that child's life and the right to privacy is greater than the right to life, when we will violate God's commandment, thou shalt not kill, in order to protect somebody's perceived privacy, we're wrong. We are morally wrong. It's an evil. And that's the basis of the court's reasoning. The only reason, they found the right to privacy to be far greater than the right to an unborn human being's life. And you know what the result is, by the way? I was told by one of the leaders in our state Thursday night that now the number of abortions in South Carolina has jumped, and now there's 100 a week. There are, and, and, and it will be growing because now we are perceived as being 
not a conservative state on the matter of abortion. We have become one of the liberal states. They call us now an abortion destination state, meaning that people now leave states that have stricter pro-life laws than we have, like Georgia, where they protect life better than we do in South Carolina. And now a lady told me you can go over to Planned Parenthood Clinic in Columbia, and most of the license plates lined up there are from Georgia. They come here because it's easier to get an abortion than it is in their home state. Now, that's just one illustration of what I'm talking about, that liberal policy is the enemy of the family. There's no greater enemy of abortion or of, of the family than abortion. I'll give you one more real quick. The headline in the Daily Signal, which is a conservative, very reliable news source on the Internet, December the 13th, President Biden signs the Respect for Marriage Act into law. Surrounded by LGBTQ lawmakers and drag queens, they lit up the house with the rainbow colors that night, and there you see some of the participants. What does the Respect for Marriage Act mean? Well, it means disrespect for marriage is what it means. The law removes all traditional definitions of male and female marriage. You see, in Genesis 1.28, God said, be fruitful and multiply. Only a male and female marriage can multiply. So he told us what kind of marriage we needed to have right there. In Genesis 2 and 24, for this cause, a man, that's a male, leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, that's a female, and they become one flesh. That's impossible for same-sex marriages. They can't become one flesh. They can't have children. So every way you view marriage scripturally, this law removes all those definitions from it. And secondly, it undermines religious freedom in the name of equality. It undermines religious freedom in the name of equality. And thirdly, it opens the door to child brides. Do you know that? The minimal age restrictions for marriage, which is now being used by the child traffickers, it's a ploy that they're using, and it opens the door to child brides. It creates a concern even that there may be polygamy again legalized in America. So everything you and I regard as sacred and biblical and holy and good about marriage this thing strikes down. And so I've pointed out two things. One, the cause of Christ is the cause of the church. And secondly, the cause of Christ is the cause of your family. Boy, value your family. And if you have children, the, your full-time job begins at 5 o'clock in the evening when you get home. Your full-time job is raising those kids. Your part-time job is making Turn a with living. one passage to me to Ezekiel chapter 22. 
Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30. The cause of Christ needs you to stand in the gap. The cause of Christ needs you to stand in the gap. Chapter 22 and verse 30. I sought for a man among them that would make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. And I found none. The Lord said, I need people who will come and join my cause. I need people who will commit to the cross and the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. I need people to stand up with urgency and conviction and wisdom and perseverance and courage, just as it did for David to go and fight Goliath. And Christ came and committed his cause to the church and to your family. And now he wants us to stand in the gap in these difficult times. A good day to rededicate yourself and your mind and heart to the cause of your family and the cause of your church. What are you doing, my friend, as a Christian to advance the cause of Christ? I'm so old now I can remember Andy Griffin. Y'all remember Andy? And he told the story of the football game. You remember that? What it was was football. And he said he went to this big stadium and there were 70,000 people and there were 22 guys down on the field in bad need of rest and 70,000 people in the stands in bad need of exercise. You know what a preacher is? He's down on the field and he's crying out to everybody, look, I'm tired. Y'all need exercise. Let's join the, the cause of Jesus Christ. Come on and help me down here on this field this year. And let's make, some great, let's make some great advance for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, I, I'm, I'm a little long, but I'm just a little long. This week, somebody sent me, Nolan Johnson sent me. His son-in-law is a writer for the Wall Street Journal. His name is Bart Swain. He lives in Columbia, married one of the twins. You all know them. Bart Swain wrote this week in the Wall Street Journal an article, How DeMar Hamlin Drove a Nation to Pray. Did you see the, the game the other night? I, I was watching it. And by the way, if you'll notice, he has the cross on his cheeks. I hope, I, I'm, I'm thinking he's probably a believer. And so he's hit in the chest and he goes down. And everybody could tell this is not a normal football injury. And he's lying on the field, and they're trying to resuscitate him. And in two or three minutes, both teams, officials, everybody involved, gather around the man, and they drop on their knees, and they start praying. What's interesting is a few months ago, they took a man to court for praying with his football team out in Oregon. These crazy laws that we have made by these crazy judges, and I hope a few are listening. And we're making a law that you can't pray, but in two minutes after an injury, everybody knows what the real truth is. So we fall on our knees, and the whole, and the whole nation starts praying. The whole nation starts praying. And you know what? This young man and they were 
everybody's fearing was dead. He's alive and he's getting well and he's talking and he is about to be released from the hospital, according to one report. An amazing recovery. Well, what could happen otherwise with that many people sincerely praying for him? And so what he did really is he reminded us again of where our real strength is. I saw something I never thought I'd see. My son sent me a video, and on ESPN, one of the anchors said, we need to pray for him, and then bowed his head and prayed. Do newspaper anchors or or TV anchors ever pray, Bob? I don't know, but I saw one there on the national news. Wasn't that wonderful? And the man prayed a, a wonderful prayer for the healing. Who would ever think you'd see that in America? And it just reminds us, God still answers prayer. And when his people get serious with him, he's going to be serious in helping us. Amen? Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please. Mm-hmm.